So what about the Pittsburgh Penguins? Anybody excited about the outcome on that? It was a great year, and if you followed them through the playoffs one round after another, you saw them take care of the New York Rangers in the first round, four games to one. And in hockey playoffs, there's always another round, right? Then they took care of the Washington Camp Capitals four games to two, but in hockey, there's always another round. And then the Tampa Bay Lightning squeaked by that four games to three. And then San Jose Sharks, Stanley Cup Finals, four games to two, last Sunday night. Every, every victory was celebrated. Every game was celebrated until that final game when the Stanley Cup come back into Pittsburgh, great parade, 400,000 people showed up in Pittsburgh to celebrate the victory parade of the Pittsburgh Penguins. What a great year, hoisting the Stanley Cup above their heads. So as I was kind of following through the playoffs, I was thinking, you know, the Christian life is kind of like the hockey playoffs, isn't it? There's always another round of games. Yesterday's battles, whether won or lost, they're over. If you were defeated, sometimes it slows us down. Sometimes it just makes us more determined. If you win, sometimes it gives us momentum. Sometimes the lull of overconfidence. But there's always, in the Christian life, there's always another game to play. There's always another round of something to go through. There's always another battle out there until the last game we play, and then it's time for the victory parade, isn't it? We get to hoist that reward that comes only from Jesus Christ over our heads, and we get to enter into the victory parade. But until then, we've got to be ready for every day. Got to be ready for every victory. Got to be ready for every defeat. Every day, we need a fresh dose of faith. I, I love it when they interview a coach after a great victory. Tell us about what you're thinking. Tell us about this victory. Well, we're going we're gonna to celebrate this victory tonight, and then what? We're going to get back to work tomorrow morning because there's always another battle. Fathers, you know that. You know the responsibility and the joy of being a father. You know the challenges of being a father. You know the balance of love and discipline. You know everything about this this assignment that God has given us. And you know it is so important if we are to lead our families and lead them well that we cannot be stale in our faith. And sometimes we do that, don't we? Our faith becomes stale. We can't be stalled in our faith. And sometimes that happens. We just get stalled. We can't be tired in our faith. And I know that happens. Sometimes we just get worn out by the day-to-day stuff. But being a father and the privilege of being a father calls every day for fresh faith, every new challenge, every new round, every new game, fresh faith. That's what we want to talk about today in Genesis chapter 32. So take your Bibles and turn there with me to Genesis 32. We're going to look at Jacob's life, and he needed some fresh faith. Uh, we're going to see about five principles today of fresh faith. We're going to apply them to fathers, but they apply to every one of us. 
as you're turning to Genesis chapter 32, let me set the context. After 20 years of being away from home, Jacob is making the trip back. He left with nothing. He had absolutely nothing but the clothes on his back. And now he comes back as a husband, as a father, and as a wealthy man. He had just had this tense encounter with his father-in-law, remember last time, a man named Laban, and it was very tense. They made a treaty with each other saying, God's going to be watching you. You don't come against me. I'm not going to come against you. The treaty of Mizpah, right there, they said, God's got his eye on you. So they didn't leave as friends, but this treaty was made, and Jacob knew that God delivered him from Laban. Great victory. But in life, there's always what? Another round. And so now he looks up, and to get back home, he has to pass through Esau's country, that brother that 20 years earlier he had stole his birthright, that brother that 20 years earlier he had deceived, that brother who 20 years earlier was consoling himself with the thought of killing Jacob. And now he's got to pass through that territory. Great victory, right? But there's always another battle to fight. Jacob was in need of some fresh faith. Chapter 32, verse 1, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. And so he named the place Mahanaim, two camps, that word means. Here's the camp of God, and here's my camp of people. Two camps, Mahanaim. Now, it's interesting there that the angels of God is mentioned. These angels meet with Jacob. We don't know what form they took. We don't know what this encounter looked like. In fact, in Hebrew, that verse is only four Hebrew words. It just cuts to the the chase. He met with the angels of God. But we do know this. The angels of God is a phrase that's used only one other time in Scripture and a very significant time. Flip back to Genesis chapter 28. You remember when Jacob was leaving as a fugitive, leaving Canaan, he slept one night in a city called Luz, and that night the angels of God appeared to him in a dream. Look at chapter 28, verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairwell, a stairway resting on the earth, and with its top reaching to the heavens, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am what? I am with you, always am. Jacob, I'm always going to be with you. I'm going to watch over you. Wherever you go, I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And Jacob, with the angels of God meeting him here, and then remembering what the angels of God had told him, now he knows that God is either a God of his promises or what? He's not. And we're going to see him depend on God. Now, he's just had a great victory with Laban. He knew that was of God. But again, it's like hockey, right? Always another round. So now he has to deal with Esau. Look at verse 3. Comes up with a plan. 
Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what I want you to say to my, to my master Esau. As we read through this, he always calls Esau his master and he always says he's the servant. Remember, he had stolen the birthright, although that was, God was going to work that out one way or another. But now he's, it's, it's, almost, it's almost as if he is, he is just giving back uh, the, the, the privileged firstborn rights to Esau throughout this, this, uh, this story. Uh, your, this, this is what I want you to say to my, to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and I, I've remained there until now for 20 years. That's where I've been. I have cattle and donkey, sheep, goats, men, servant, maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find what? Favor in your eyes. He didn't know if 20 years had dulled Esau's desire to kill him or just intensified it. So he's saying, I hope I can find favor in your eyes. And um, he gets this word back in verse six, not what he wanted to hear. When the messenger returned to Jacob, he said, uh, well, I got some good, I got some, I got some bad news and some worse news. I went to see your brother and now he is coming to meet you. That's the bad news. The worst news is he's got 400 men with him. Probably not coming to go to Starbucks, right? 400 men. The word coming in Hebrew conveys an alarmingly vivid picture. The man and his, the man and his gang are approaching. Now, the 400 men demonstrate that Esau had been doing pretty well himself. But now he's coming to get Jacob. Look at verse 7. In great fear and distress... Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, the flocks and the herds and camels as well. And he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group may be left to escape. Well, there's not a father in this room who wouldn't have shared Jacob's emotions if we thought someone was coming after our family. Fear and distress. One translation just puts it in one word. He was terrified. But the question is, when the enemy's going to attack your family, what's the first thing you should do? The enemy's coming, fathers. What's the first thing you should do? Well, we learn the answer to that question in Jacob's life. 9 through 12, look what happens. Model for us. Then Jacob, what? He prayed. He's scared, but he prayed. Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh Lord who said to me, go back to the country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. And he will, come, he will come and attack me and also the mothers of their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It's a model prayer. By the way, prayer 
is the basis for fresh faith. That's where it starts. Prayer is a bit, you tired? You step, feel a little stalled, a little stale in your faith? The refreshment starts with, with talking to the Father. Let's go through this prayer real quick. Uh, again, a model prayer for us. First of all, in his being afraid, Jacob talked to God. It's, it's simple, but he turns to God. Secondly, he humbled himself before God. He said, everything I have is yours. I don't deserve any of this. I left with nothing. You gave me all this. I'm unworthy of your kindness and faithfulness. Every dad could say that, right? God, I am unworthy of the great blessings that you've given to me. Jacob expressed his need very specifically. Esau, he's coming to get me, and I need you to protect me. He also expressed a lot of things that men don't like to express. What's that? His fear. God, I am afraid. We don't like to say that as men, do we? But we are, and we know it. And God wants to hear us express it. God, I'm afraid. And then he reminds God of God's word. He says, you're the, you're the one who promised me. You're going to get me back. I got, a, I got a big obstacle in front of me. I got Esau with 400 men. But you promised me you're going to take me back. I don't know how I'm going to get through Esau. I don't have fighters in this group. We're shepherds. I don't know how this is going to work out, God. But you do. And, you, and you're the one who said, get me back. You're going to take me back to the land and prosper me. Man, that is a model prayer right there. Prayer of humility, prayer of petition, prayer of vulnerability, prayer of promise. Now, granted, we probably this morning didn't have an encounter with angels of God on the way here, right? Anyone? We're all in the same boat on that one, right? And maybe we didn't have a dream where the angels of God came down and told us, I'm going to do all these things for you and I'm going to make you prosper. But we still have the promises of God. Every word is true. Every promise we can stand on. Everything he gives us, we can go back and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I do know this. You said I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I don't know how I'm going to handle this, but I know you said, take courage, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. Now, it means that we got men, we got to be in God's word. We got to know what the promises are. You can't recall God's promise when you don't know what that promise is. But these are the promises of God. They are as true today as they were when they were written on the page. And they're as true today as they were when Jacob was reminding God of the promises. So prayer is the basis of fresh faith. Secondly, action is the energy of fresh faith. You can't just sit there. God expects you to do something. Whatever that is, you got to get it done. Look at verse 17. Jacob takes um, 550 of his best animals, and he instructs, and he, and, he, and he gave them to his servants. Look at verse 17. He instructed the one in the lead, 
When my brother Esau meets you, he's just going to send these servants in waves one after another to Esau. He says, make sure there's some space between you. I want Esau to absorb the first one. Then I want him to absorb the second one. And then in verse 17, he says, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you, then you tell him, you be sure to say this, they belong to your servant Jacob. Emphasize that word servant, your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord. Emphasize that word Lord Esau, for he's coming behind us. In the 19, he also instructed I mean, Jacob is a micromanager. He said, I got to get this message down. You got to make sure this is exactly what you say. He also instructed the second and the third and all the other ones who followed uh, the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And and, And don't forget, be sure to say your servant, emphasize servant, Jacob, is coming behind us. For he thought I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending ahead and later when I see him, perhaps he's going to receive me. The word pacify is a great Hebrew word. It's the word kapor, and it means, uh, it means atonement. It means, uh, it means reconciliation. It means to make appeasement. Now, we don't know exactly what's going through Jacob's mind. We never know exactly what's going through Jacob's mind. It could have been that he's trying to buy the appeasement with Esau. Uh, Esau, I, 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 I tricked you. I took the blessing of the firstborn. God has blessed me tremendously. Now I'm giving this back. I'm buying it back. I'm kind of giving it back to you. It's all yours. So maybe he's trying to buy it. Or better, and I think he's doing this, Jacob's sorry. God's been working on him for 20 years. And he's trying to show remorse by sharing the blessing that God has given him. I know this doesn't... Esau, I know this doesn't buy the appeasement, but I really want you to know tangibly with all these animals. Yeah, they're just animals, but they're, it's, it's wealth in that day. They're, they're, they're great blessings from God. I, I want you to know I am sorry for what I did. So these waves of gift keep making their ways across. Then Jacob takes his family and the rest of his possessions and he has them go across a, a tributary to the Jordan River called the Jabbok River. And, and he stays on one side. He's by himself on one side. We don't know why he stayed on one side. God ordained that. But he's there by himself. And look what happens in chapter 32, verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. A man comes and wrestles with Jacob. And the man cannot overpower Jacob. Now, Jacob's life is characterized by physical strength. You remember uh, when he comes out of the womb, he is grasping on to Esau's heel, trying to pull him back. When he... Uh, first meets uh, Rachel, remember, uh, they're by a well, and there's a rock on top of the well. Normally, it takes four or five guys to, to roll the rock away. Uh, Jacob, to impress Rachel, and because he's strong, he rolls the rock away by himself. For 20 years, he's been out in the hot and the cold, taking care of Laban's sheep. So he's strong. But here's a man, we learn the man is who? God who cannot overpower Jacob. Think about that. God 
places himself in a body that is limited by physical strength so that Jacob can wrestle with him, can engage him, can take him on. And there's kind of a stalemate going on. They wrestle all night long. But he's God, and all he has to do is just touch Jacob's hip and is wrenched. It's out of socket. It's dislocated. Now we say, time out. I can't imagine the God of the universe coming to earth in a body that could be overpowered by man. What about Jesus? God loved us so much that he came in the form of his son Jesus. Fully God, fully man. God in the flesh. And Jesus, by his divine touch, could make the blind see and lame walk. He could even raise the dead. And he humbled himself in his body and allowed himself to be overpowered and put on a cross. So the same situation we see here with Jacob wrestling with this man who's God in the flesh, God in the form of a man, it's the same situation we see in Jesus as he goes to the cross for us. Look at verse 26. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man said to him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and men and have overcome. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. The name Israel means struggles with God. Amen. What a name for Jacob and what a name for this nation that's going to come from his 12 sons. Israel in the Old Testament is always a nation struggling with God. They live up to their name. Sometimes they want to follow God and they, they really want to follow God, but then they want to follow the pagan nations, the pagan gods, the pagan culture. They really want to obey God, but then sometimes and then they don't. They want to obey what they want. They want to do what they want to do. Kind of like us, right? That name pretty much fits us. Struggling with God. In the New Testament, the Jewish leaders struggled with God. The, the, the Israelite leaders of the New Testament struggled with God until they finally put him on the cross. We went to Israel uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, our guide was uh, a Jewish guy, great guy. He'd been in the military, and uh, he knew history. He was fantastic and very respectful of Christianity. He was not a Christian. He was a, he was a Jew. And so we had great times to talk with him, and we asked him, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? And so he, he answered it more nationally than personally, and he said, well, up until about 100 years ago, we didn't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you don't talk about someone, they don't exist. But he said about 100 years ago, we started discussing Jesus, who he is and what he did. And he said, you know, we're still making up our minds about Jesus. So Israel still struggles with, uh, with Jesus. They still struggle with God. There at the Jabbok River, Jacob not only got his name changed, 
but his life was changed. Look at verse 30. So Jacob called the place Penel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. I saw God face to face and lived. That normally doesn't happen. Verse 31, the sun rose above him and as he passed, he was limping because of his hip. Limping because of his hip. Every stride Jacob took from that day on, he was reminded of the night when he wrestled with God. Every step he took from that day on, he remembered that his name was changed and his life was changed. Here's the third principle. Wrestling with God provides fresh faith. Fresh faith. So here's a question. Do you ever wrestle with God? Not physically. Not like Jacob did. But wrestle with God over things that he's doing in your life or not doing in your life. Struggling over his timing. Struggling with him regarding some people he's put in your life or not put in your life. Struggling with him during challenges of illness, job loss, separation, divorce, strange child. You ever wrestle with God? Wrestling with God provides fresh faith. Over and over and over in Scripture, we see men and women of God who are wrestling with him. Psalm 44 Can you relate to this? Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Get up. You're going to reject us forever? You're going to hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. When are you going to get up and help us? Wrestling with God. Habakkuk, the prophet, wrestled with God. Habakkuk 1, verses uh, 2 and 3. How long, O Lord, must I call for help and you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save. Why, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction, violence are before me. There's strife, conflict abounds. Where are you? Anyone ever ask that question? Wrestling with God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. I know this is a special uh, verse in Washington. The leadership in Washington, you guys are taking this verse on as as your theme verse through the year to pray over the campus in Washington. What a great verse, a verse we all should take on. Epaphras, Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greeting. He is always what? Wrestling in prayer for you. So that you may, here's what he's praying, so that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured Fathers, man, is that a prayer for our kids or not? That our kids would stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. And when I read that, I thought, I'm not praying enough for my children. I'm not wrestling in prayer for my children, knowing all the stuff they got going on, knowing all the challenges ahead of them, knowing the changes that are happening in their life. Fathers, we should be wrestling with our children. We should be praying, God, help our sons and daughters to stand firm in all your will, your perfect will. 
help them to be mature, help them to grow in the faith, help them to be fully assured of who you are, that they are significant in you. And they don't have to chase stuff, maybe like they saw me do, chase stuff to be significant, chase stuff to be secure, that they can be accepted in you and know that, that they can be forgiven and feel the, the cleansing aspect of forgiveness on their life, that they can be empowered by your spirit, they can be fully assured of who they are in Christ. Man, is that, that's a tremendous prayer. We need to be wrestling with God. Well, after the night of wrestling with God, look at verse uh, 33. Again, it's just like the playoffs, right? There's always another round. Wrestles with God, and then he looks up in the morning, and there is who? Esau, coming with 400 men. And so Jacob does something that's not, it wasn't one of the smartest things he had done. He divides his family up. He takes the, 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 the kids he had by the servants, and he puts them in the front. And then he takes Leah and her children and puts them next. And then he puts Rachel and Joseph last. What's he doing? I like them a lot better than you. Because if he's coming like I think he's coming with 400 guys, he's going to wipe out the servant's children. And he's going to wipe out Leah's. Maybe she can get away, but wipe out. But if he wipes out everybody, surely that will give time for Rachel and Joseph to get away. By the way, that's a foolish thing to do. Favoritism, kill a family. And we see that coming back to haunt Jacob the rest of his life. It's going to get Joseph sold into slavery. We'll see that next time. Well, Esau comes. Jacob has all the family go up. He goes before them and he bows down. Scripture says he bowed down seven times. Not once, not three times, seven times. That is the act of total submission. That's the act of total surrender. He is in effect saying, Esau, you are the older brother. I am serving you. All the blessings should be yours. I am sorry for what I did. He totally submits himself to Esau. Look at verse four. By the way, in this passage, it just, it just shows Jacob's personality and it shows Esau's personality. Jacob was always maneuvering. Uh, Jacob was always measuring things out. Jacob was always had everything scripted, right? Esau, just pure emotion. Look at verse four. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and he embraced him and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Everything's good with Esau. Then Esau looked up and he, and, and he saw the women and the children who were with him. And Jacob answered, or he asked, who are they? And then Jacob said, well, these are the children that God, that God has graciously given your servant. And then all the kids and the maidservants and the wives came and they bowed down just like uh, they had practiced before Esau. And they're reconciled. They meet each other and are reconciled. That's a, another point here. Reconciliation is a result of fresh faith. Reconciliation is a result of fresh faith. Okay, fathers. Maybe. 
Some of you need to get serious about reconciliation. Your kids are watching. That father in your life who maybe wasn't a good, good father, you need to reconcile. Next spouse that, uh, that you don't speak real highly of, that's your children's mom or dad. You better get that reconciled. A friend, a family member, a brother or sister. You have a brother or sister you haven't talked to for years? Seriously? You want to follow Jesus Christ? You need to get that reconciled. Reconciliation is powerful. And it, and it gives us, actually it's the result of fresh faith. When God's at work in our life, we want to get things taken care of. Jacob wanted that taken care of. He, he, want, he didn't even know if he could get back to the promised land without reconciling with Esau. Now it's interesting here what happens. He, um, so, so Esau says, man, this is great. They're weeping together and everything. Jacob's feeling pretty good about this. And then Esau says, this is fantastic. Let's, let's travel together. And Jacob says, I don't know if I trust you that much. You go on down to Seir. I'll join you later on. Well, I'll leave some men to accompany you, to protect you. I got it. You know, I got these, I got these, these young animals here. I got young kids. I can't move very fast. It's going to be frustrating to you and your men. You go ahead. I'll meet you down there. Now again, Jacob always goes back to that deception. He never intended to go to Seir. He takes off and goes another direction. But he knows he's reconciled. And these men will only meet one more time at their father's funeral. Some of you are going to meet at your dad's funeral and there's going to be a lot of tension in the family. Jacob and Esau did and they, got, they had that worked out. One more thing. Fresh faith celebrates God. Fresh faith celebrates God. Look at verse 18. Kind of a summary to the story. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, the Mesopotamia area, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and he camped within the side of the city for a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hammer, the father of Shechem, a plot of ground. So he's no longer traveling. He wants to settle down. He pitched his tent there. He named the place Succoth. Succoth means shelters. So he started building shelters for his animals. Again, a designation that we're here and we're here to stay. God's going to move him around a little bit more because this isn't the place where God wants him, but this is where he settles first. But he did a significant thing there. Look at verse 20. There he set up an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel the mighty God of Israel, or mighty is the God of Israel. Man, he knew God was with him. He knew God had given him everything he had. He knew God had blessed him on this two-decade journey. He knew God had protected him from Laban. If God hadn't protected him, he'd be dead. He knew God had protected him from Esau. If Esau hadn't protected him, he'd be dead. And so he sets up this altar and he just celebrates God's goodness. El Elohe 
Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. You guys say that? Can we say that? Mighty is the God of Israel. El Elohei, put your name in there. Mighty is my God. I've watched him work in my life. His promises are true. I have tested him and he always comes through. I can live with fresh faith. Mighty is my God. El Elohei, put your name in there. He's the God who saves me. He's the God who cares for me. He's the God I can talk to. He's the God I can say, God, I am scared to death. And he always delivers on his promises. Every father should be a man of God who celebrates God so their family can see it. By the way, when he built that altar, what do you think his sons were doing? They were watching. My dad believes this stuff. My dad didn't just talk about it. He is celebrating what God has done. And that's the call of every father, isn't it? To, show, to celebrate God from our heart and to show our kids this is what it looks like to serve the mighty God. Man, that's our prayer. Tunchilkin. Our, who leads our men's ministry, is going to come up. And men at all the campuses, you guys in Wilkinsburg, you guys in Washington, you guys in Robinson, you guys here in the South Hills, everybody come down to the front, young and old men, and Tunch is going to lead us in a time of prayer. Come on down, my brothers. We are going to lock arms and, and pray. And one of the cool things that we get to do here uh, at the Bible Chapel is part uh, of our culture is, man, we lock arms. And what I, what I love about the locking of arms, it is very symbolic of men's relationships. It's very symbolic of joining the team, being part of the huddle, and coming alongside one another. And, you know, it's really cool in, uh, in Old Testament Israel, uh, one of the things that David and his mighty men did is when they went into battle, they locked shields. And so as men, we lock arms, we lock shields, we come alongside one another to help and encourage one another, to protect one another, and most importantly, to challenge one another. So as we're lining up together, let's lock these arms together, get in one giant huddle, grab the guy next to you. And, uh, and what's really cool about this is that we really join into one. And uh, as we put our hearts together and, and we start this time of prayer, I want you to think about this as well. It's not just for praying now and then. It is for doing life together. It is for joining in prayer and in studying the Word. And we have Bible studies literally every day of the week for men, huddles, open studies, so I want you to look to the man to the left and to the man to the right. And how would you like to join in a huddle with one of these guys? Please do not pass up an opportunity to lock arms with other men here at the chapel. I'd love to help you do that. Please call me if I can uh, get you connected. So as we're locked up, let's bow our heads and join our hearts together in prayer. Father, you're an awesome God. And uh, we are truly nothing without you. And we are so thankful, so thankful for the gift of fatherhood. We are so thankful, Lord, that you have created us in your image. We are so thankful, Lord, 
for the cross. We are so thankful as we look upon the cross and see you. And as you bled for us, and you did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is by our salvation. Lord, all we can say is thank you, thank you, thank you. And as we look upon the cross, we see the ultimate in manhood, the ultimate in fatherhood, Lord. So, Lord, we just thank you for the day, this time of worship, and we thank you for Ron as he opened up the word, and we thank you for the ministry of your word. And, Lord, we pray that your word, your word would stir us, Lord, that it would stir our hearts to be the men that you have called us to be. And Lord, as, as Ron pointed out, Lord, we pray, cause us to be men of prayer, Lord. Cause us to understand the gift of prayer, Lord, that, that when we pray, we are ushered into your throne room. And Lord, let us never take that for granted. Lord, as we pray, let us know that we can climb upon your lap as father to us, Lord, that we can find grace and mercy. Lord, let us never say we're too busy to pray. Let us never take this gift for granted. And Lord, we pray not only that you would cause us to be men of prayer, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be men of action, Lord, that we wouldn't stay passive with these gifts that you would give us, that we would use them for your kingdom, Lord, that we would be men of the word, Lord, that we would look at the word of God and, and study it and study it by ourselves and repeat it to our children and our wives, Lord, that we would be the spiritual leader of our homes, that we would be part of the brotherhood of the priesthood of men, Lord. Cause us to be men of the word. And not just men of the word, Lord. Cause us to be men of reconciliation, Lord. Cause us to reconcile relationships that uh, from the past, Lord, whether it is a dad or a son or a brother or a sister, uh, Lord, just, Lord, cause us to reconcile those relationships. And Lord, cause us to be men who wrestle with you. As, as Ron shared us, Lord, wrestle in prayer for those that we love, for our marriages, for our wives, for our children, for our loved ones, Lord. Cause us to wrestle with you, Lord. Cause us not to be passive men. And finally, Lord, cause us to be men that celebrate you, Lord. We, we saw a great picture of it this past Monday the celebration of the Penguin Stanley Cup, Lord. And as we watched all those men, women, and children who wore Penguin jerseys and T-shirts, Lord, cause us to celebrate you that way. Beyond just a, a championship, Lord, but you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us celebrate you. Lord, let our lives just display your love, your mercy, your grace, and your wonder. And Lord, let all see you in us and give thanks and glory to you. So Lord, as we walk out of here as men, Lord, us, Lord, let us not be the same. Let us be changed, transformed, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Let us be men who love you deeply. Let us be men who follow you closely. And let us be men who know you intimately, Lord. Cause us to be the men you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the men of God said...